Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, October the 23rd, 2023. We seem to live, although this has always been a sense, particularly from literary critics, cultural critics, we live at a time of cultural decay or of standstill. There's an interesting piece in the New York Times from the prominent cultural critic Jason Farrago. I think he's on staff there about how he believes culture has come to a standstill, that ours is the least innovative century for the arts in 500 years, quite an achievement, but trying to be cheerful, he says it's not such a bad thing. The literary critic, another literary critic, Christian Lorenzen, uh, had an interesting piece in the Washington Post about the death of a small literary magazine and what it tells us about our general cultural decay. It's not just decay. It seems as if nothing much is changing. Um, and it hasn't changed for a decade at least. Uh, ten, more than 10 years ago, I had another very prominent American cultural critic and writer, Kurt Anderson, on the show when Keenan was at TechCrunch. And he wrote a piece back in 2011 about how nothing seems to have changed. We're all wearing the same clothes, eating the same kind of food, articulating the same views. And more than 10 years later, nothing much has changed. Um, and this is particularly interesting, I think, in the context of an interesting essay in this uh, issue, the fall issue of Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics by my guest, Christian Lorenzen. As I said, he wrote a piece in uh, the Washington Post about uh, our cultural decay. And he has a, another one, and maybe he'll correct me if I'm wrong. It's a, it's a wonderful essay in Dreams Begin, Responsibilities, a memoir. But it's a, a memoir which is sad, which looks back and perhaps bemoans an age when one could be a cultural critic. These days, it's much harder. Christian is joining us from Pasadena uh, in Southern California. He's normally based in New York. Christian, have I misrepresented the essay? Is it a, a sad piece of nostalgia? Oh, I, I'm hesitant to say that it's sad or regretful. I, you know, I, the essay focuses on a decade that coincided with my own 20s. Um, so the the 2000s, largely the Bush administration, um, where for me personally, I was stuck in a lot of um, a lot of uh, kind of low level magazine biz jobs. Uh, I had a publishing book publishing job for a year in there that I don't really mention. Um, <clears throat> and it was a time of, I think, literary and political and careerist frustration for me and a lot of the people I knew who came of age at that time. Um, I think one thing that changed since then is that for the younger generation, they were able to make either a splash or a difference or feel as if they were making a difference because 
the internet had opened up uh, whole new um, vectors of recognition and publicity for them and ways of being a public writer that had not yet uh, developed in the culture and, you know, around the time of, I arrived in New York in the year 2000 when blogs were not even something that were, were well, they were a twinkle in a few people's eye, but eyes, but the blog revolution didn't really happen until three or to five years later. You write the, the, the beginning of the essay is particularly memorable, and I'm quoting um, how this is how the essay in Dreams Begin Responsibilities, a memoir. We knew we were already too late, too late to be modernists, too late to be Reds, too late to turn against Stalin, too late to fight the Nazis, too late to be red-baited, too late to join the anti-communist left too late to take money from the CIA for our magazines. Is that how we can summarize your generation? And there is a generational quality here, I think, to the essay. Um, too late, is that the, the middle name of your generation? Always too late, always just missing the bus? Well, here I should admit that my editor at Liberties, Leon Weaseltier, asked me to model a piece or he, he asked me to take a piece by Irving Howe from Descent magazine in 1968, The New York Intellectuals, and write a version for my generation. Um, and in New York literary terms, the generation stretching from the magazine N plus one, roughly to the relatively new magazine, The Drift, um, which I've also contributed to, but is... Uh, was started by um, writers about mm, 17 years younger than I am. Uh, so my opening line is actually a version of Howe's line, um, which I think is something like they were, they were already too late or something like that. And then the... Our generation, or at least the writers who I came up with, were very fascinated by that generation of hows. Uh, and we took them largely as our models. How and the, and the partisan review crowd of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and early 60s in particular. And so... In that opening paragraph, I'm sort of rattling off the things about that generation that fascinated us. And that, Leon uh, is an and old friend of mine. He, he's been on the show a couple of times. Um, and he came on, he had an essay in the previous issue of mm -hmm. uh, uh, Liberties against the romance of transformation, the idea that we can't really change ourselves. Is the essay then, given its reference to Irving Howe in the 40s, is it about history repeating itself or history failing to repeat itself? Uh, well, <clears throat> I mean, the one of the cliches I tried to avoid was the Francis Fukuyama line about the end of history. Um, so, I mean, I, I 
my technique was to take a lot of the the points hit by how some of which were applicable to the generation that I'm describing, some of which certainly were not, and then to narrate our experience essentially using techniques from Jay McInerney's Bright Lights Big City. And to do so in a more in a more comic manner than how attempts. Tell me a little bit about Irving Howe. I have to admit, um, I don't know much about him. I know the name, of course. We all know the name. But why is he interesting? Or why was this piece interesting that you're, in a sense, mimicking? Well, um, he, was a, he was part of the New York intellectuals crowd. He founded Dissent. Um, to describe his politics, you know, I would, it would take me a few hours to get it all precisely right. Um, I am not entirely clear on what his relation, you know, coming from, you know, he's one of the, one of the guys who was at, you know, the famous cafeteria CUNY where they were all separating themselves according to, you know, who was a Trotskyist, who was still a Stalinist. Right, and that was the generation with Irving Kristol and many yeah, others. Yeah. They all started out on the left and they all pretty much ended out, ended up on the neoconservative right. Right, I don't think, I don't think Howe uh, made that journey quite as much as the rest of them did. Um, I mean, he, Descent, I think, was, I think, Closer to Michael Harrington, had an association with the Democratic Socialists of America, probably always considered himself a man of the left. And I doubt he I don't think he ever went in with the Republicans or Reagan and such. Right. But the piece um, might have still been a cold warrior, however. Right. The piece. And and I enjoyed it very much, um, Christian. I mean, the piece isn't really about Howe's generation. It's about. No, it's, it's, it's it's an essay about. I was, I, all I'm saying is that opening makes a nod towards Howe's generation. Right. No, I understand. But it's an, and I want to talk more about you, how, how you define and how you see your generation. And my reading of it, and again, correct me, please, if I'm wrong, is it's a generation, sort of a, a generation that matured in the 90s. I mean, I, I am immediately thought of, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Klosterman's book, The 90s. Yeah. Um, and a a generation who, whose promise, and it's not true, of course, of all the individuals, was never quite realized. A generation caught between maybe the how generation and the digital generation. Right. But at the time, we didn't fully understand what was coming in terms of the digital future. I mean, nor at this point in time do we understand you know, what future technologies are going to have an effect on uh, culture, politics, and life in general. I mean, we couldn't have, in, we, in 2000, we, newspapers were still highly profitable uh, as print products. Same goes for magazines. Um, if you wanted to make a living as a writer, you had to be published on paper. Um uh so that's a being caught in between i would say more we were caught in between i mean literally we were caught the original title of this 
piece was New York Intellectuals X because I'm writing largely about, I, I guess I would say the late stage of Generation X. And, um, you know, we end up caught between the millennials and the boomers, the boomers being the very tail end of the New York intellectuals, uh, you know, figures like Daphne Merkin and such, but, you know, two generations after Philip Roth and Susan Sontag were generally considered like the last generation of New York intellectuals coming of age in the early 60s. Um, so I, our fate so far is that we've never really been in charge of anything and that we've been outnumbered all along, both by our older brothers, the boomers, and our younger siblings, the millennials. And it seems like the millennials' demographic edge on us may mean that we are perpetually sort of outsiders. Now, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Um, in a way, we're kind of excluded from the Oedipal drama that's constantly happening between the millennials and boomers. And we can occupy more of a, a gadfly position, which is something I'm fairly comfortable with myself. Yeah, and you you write in the the essay, and then came the blogs, and then you, in a little bit later you write, then the young people came. Yeah, the, the nostalgia there, and maybe that's not the right word, Christian, is for a time when you could go to a very fancy college, and you make quite a lot of that in the piece. A lot, a lot of the people you're writing about went to I, I can't remember how you quite describe them, fine schools or good schools, the Ivy League schools. And you could operate as a freelance writer and critic and travel and publish and make a living. Um, is that how you remember it in part, that first decade of the 21st century before the internet really destroyed that old cultural world? The, the well, that was the aspiration for many of us. And I knew a few people who realized it, who, are, who realized it before the age of 30. Um, but I would say that, um, you know, it was very hard to get discovered back then and the internet and social media and generally a, a wider array of publications, uh, has made the boundary between being a completely unknown and frustrated writer and being a suddenly quite well-known writer with a lot of people wanting work out of you to be far more permeable plus of course you got the issue of being paid yeah which is what i want to pay come to after not, the break which is pay has not as largely kind of the the story of the pay i mean i still work in various capacities with a lot of writers who were born in the 1930s or 1940s and um you know i tell them what the good rates are these days and they laugh what what are the good rates? Well, I told I told uh, somebody that uh, such and such magazine was paying a, a dollar and a quarter, a dollar and a nickel a word these days, and he said, "Aha! I used to get six fifty a word." But six hundred and fifty or six six dollars and fifty cents a word. Yeah, well, that must have been Philip Roth come back to life, wasn't? Not quite, but almost as famous. More of an investigative journalist. 
One of the things that struck me um, about the college stuff, Christian, and, and, and again, perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, because you're close to the ground on this, is kids coming out of a, a fancy school, a Yale, a Harvard, a NYU, they're coming out with 50, 100, $150,000 of debt. Um, and the humanities have been shrunk in colleges and there aren't full-time jobs in magazines or newspapers anymore. So it's a very, very different world. Whereas your generation, uh, what you called uh, New York Generation X, came out of college. They may have had some debt. But yeah, I had very little, practically none. My sister, who was five years younger than me, ended up with a lot more. Do you think that's one of the reasons for what you see as this, you and people like Farago see as this cultural decay? It's simply not possible these days to be an artist, a writer, a poet, an aspiring one, and actually feed oneself. Well, um, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm as committed as Jason is to the same thesis of cultural decay. Uh, or not exactly. I think his piece is very good. And I have, um, I'm working on another piece along that has similar parallels in which I definitely intend to cite him. Um, the structural questions that you raise, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the debt trap is, horrible um if you want to read a good piece on that question michael h miller uh or i think his byline currently is mh miller wrote a piece on the student debt question he's a journalist i've worked with over the years in the baffler a few years ago mm. um, another small magazine i don't know if it's still around but it is to survive. It's, it's going strong actually no, that's um, good news <clears throat> and um yeah, I mean, that is definitely one of the nobody right now or hardly anybody has it as good in America as they did during the post-war boom. Rents are too high. Uh, you know, um, incomes have stagnated. Uh, certainly word rates have stagnated. And one of the responses from the millennial generation and a salutary one has been a greater effort towards labor organizing, even in, you know, in the offices of fancy magazines. Organizing something that the baby boomer staffers of the New Yorker attempted in the mid seventies and the, and the millennial staffers of the New Yorker managed to accomplish a year or two ago. Yeah, actually, uh, tomorrow I've got David Leonhardt of the New York Times on the show. He's written a book about the death of the American dream. And we've done so many different shows with the same theme. And his view is over the last 50 years, the most profound change has been the decline of uh, labor unions. So the, the, the shift back to labor, I think, is, is a healthy thing. Yeah. We, are talking, we are talking with Christian... Uh, we are talking with Christian Lorenzen, uh, author of uh, To Dreams Begin Responsibilities, a memoir, a lovely new piece in uh, Leon Weaseltier's excellent new quarterly, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Longtime viewers of the show know that 
Liberties is also a, a supporter and sponsor of this show, but this particular show is not sponsored by Liberties. Um, uh, Christian, you you have a Substack page now. You do freelance. You do all sorts of things. How do you, and not you personally, but how does how does a, a freelance cultural journalist survive? Well, it's a very patchwork kind of thing. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of freelance editing. Um, I tend to have enough writing assignments lined up so that uh, the fees will total about $4,000. And I always hope I can finish those pieces within two months, and I never do. But I find myself often working on, you know, long-term uh, I, I line up a lot of pieces and I find myself still with the same assignments that I haven't got around to yet uh, year after I've taken them on. So, I, you know, I'm lucky and I have good relationships with several different magazines, um, some of which, two, two of which I was a staffer on them, uh, the London Review of Books and Harper's in the past. Um, and, um, for me, it's just a lot of hustling and, uh, and, you know, trying to keep the editors happy while also trying to make sure I'm doing work of the, you know, of an ever increasing quality. You wrote, you're speaking of Harper's, you wrote an interesting uh, review of a book about um, uh, in the age of the algorithm. How, how is technology changing all this, particularly this new wave of technology? Of course, there was the writer's strike, which I think is ending now in Hollywood. Do you see AI as the, the final nail in the coffin or maybe as an opportunity? I don't think AI poses very much threat to literary writers or journalists. Um, from what I've been told, it's going to have a, a very large effect on like clerical work in the business world. But um, I think so far the threat of AI has been so much hype. Uh, although I'm currently sitting in Pasadena, I don't really know too much about the film biz. I have some experience performing in underground theater, but I don't know very much myself about um, the threat of AI to Hollywood writers. Although A.S. Hamra, the film critic and a friend of mine, has written a pretty good piece about this in... And a, and a somewhat pessimistic piece about this in Fast Company magazine, where he sees, you know, formulaic AI being used on script writing and writers just being called in as punch-up men. Um, yeah, we did a show with Jonathan Taplin, another prominent Hollywood entrepreneur executive, um, used to run the Annenberg School at USC. He suggests that what this is going to do is result in the screen screenwriters who used to get half a million dollars per project now getting five or ten thousand. Uh, but they're not going to be more screenwriters. So much of the money is being squeezed out of the industry. And I assume the same will happen 
in the publishing business. I mean, even for star journalists, the Michael Lewis's of the world, what, what impact do you think it will have on, on journalism? I honestly don't think it will have that much impact on uh, journalism that seeks to do more than convey information, right? If we can distinguish the arts of, you know, persuasion, humor, any effect that we might be termed literary, um, anything that isn't strictly conveying dry information, I don't think AI is going to amount to a real threat. And I don't, I think, you know, as soon as AI takes over writing, the demand for such writing will dry up because people won't want to read it. Christian, I, my background is as a tech entrepreneur, I had a number of music startups in the 90s. Uh, and I knew as well as anyone the promise of, of tech and of the digital revolution. But ironically, what happened in the music business in particular is what we've seen is the reification, if that's the right word, of vinyl. Digital is the giveaway, and people are still spending large amounts of money on, on, on physical albums. The, the CD has been squeezed, uh, but albums are selling, I think, better than they've ever done. Yeah. In in the publishing business, the book has survived in contrast with the CD. And I'm curious as what you think of a, a startup like Liberties, which does have a website, although it's a fairly cursory one, and is focused on the physical product of a quarterly journal. Do you think paper has the same, again, I use this the N-word, nostalgic value in commercial and intellectual terms as vinyl? Um, I mean, I find paper to be uh, entirely more than 100% preferable to reading on a screen. By the same token, I've been leading a somewhat itinerant existence since February. And as a book reviewer, including today, I've had to do my work using PDFs that I read either on my laptop or, God forbid, on my phone. Um, Liberties is certainly a sumptuous journal and it's I've been a subscriber since the start and it's a real pleasure to read on paper. Uh, the same goes for its kind of younger peers like N plus one, the baffler, as I mentioned before, the drift, although I was disappointed that they decided to use a font without serifs in their print editions. Um, I think I, I did some are you, the last, are you the last man in the world uh um christian who who understand i i have to, i have to admit it probably reflects my own ignorance that i don't even know what that means what do you mean by that the difference between a font with serifs and I don't even uh, know what a serif is uh it, it's you know the little ornamental it's the difference between say helvetica and germond if you know what those fonts are i mean with all due respect who cares I just find it nice to read. I, 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 it's more pleasing to my eyes. Oh, I see. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the experience of, of reading physical versus digital. I think the design of a font and which and the choice of typeface and the size, in addition to the physicality of a book versus the glow of a screen, I think those, those things matter quite a, quite a lot. 
Do you think that to publish a sumptuous journal requires a, a, a sumptuous kind of fellow like Leon Weaseltier, that it, it requires men of the old school, if not Irving Howe, certainly someone familiar with that world? Well, uh, Leon's managing editor, Celeste Marcus. Yeah, and Celeste is the other, but she's also sumptuous in her own way. She's been on the show a couple of times. Well, it just goes to show that someone of her generation can with the talent can certainly uh, become that sort of editor quite quickly. And I'd say the same of uh, Rebecca Panovka and Kiara Barrow, the editors of The Drift. Um, I'm sure I, me, I don't know them and I don't know The Drift. What, what does the, tell me a little bit about The Drift. What does it do? Um, the Drift is a kind of, is a New York intellectual magazine that publishes, uh, you know, journalism, cultural criticism, and fiction. It started, I believe, in 2020. Um, its editors are about 30 years old. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I've, uh, to explain it to people as a shorthand, I've called it N plus three after as a kind of third generation n plus one n plus two being the point out of chicago which is another good little magazine mm. is it out of brooklyn i think the drift is out of brooklyn yeah sumptuous brooklyn yeah Let, let's end uh, i'm looking forward to having you back on the show you've been traveling recently i know you're in los angeles at the moment um but you've been moving around a lot and uh, you've been spending the last few months in albania of all places we chatted before we went live i asked you if you knew the work of leah upi one of the world's leading progressive political theorists who grew up in albania had a wonderful book on it she was on the show what were you what have you been doing in albania christian I went to Albania with many essays to write, including this one, which I wrote mostly, well, in two little stretches, one in May in the in a suburb of Albania's capital, Tirana, called Kamza, on a, at a, in a hotel on Donald J. Trump Boulevard. Wow. Actually kind of a, a uh, the story of that is, Long one, but Albanian politics, so it was explained to me, mimic U.S. politics. So the party in power right now uh, is very much a sort of Biden type party, and the party out of power has come to worship um, Trump. And so this suburb was a stronghold of sort of Albanian Trumpists, and they named a street after him, hoping he would come to visit, which I don't believe he has yet. I wrote the rest of the piece on a beach called uh, beach in a beach village called Cheparo, looking out over the confluence of the Ionian and Adriatic seas at Corfu, which happened to be on fire in the last week in July. So I, I spent a lot of time in isolation, just trying to write this piece, a long piece I wrote for Book Forum magazine, which was the magazine uh, mentioned earlier in the piece I wrote for the Washington Post, which had gone out of business, but has since been revived and is now published in partnership with The Nation magazine. Um, so, yeah, I wrote a lot of pieces. I also went to 
film festival in Kosovo and the Venice Film Festival to see the Harmony Corinne picture. I generally, I found myself um, free of the burdens of either an apartment or a family. So I decided to hit the road for a while. And I don't know, there are, I think there are a few books I'm working on right now. I these will be the first books I publish, but I have one in mind to do about Albania that's not yet fully formed. Yeah, I know your family is originally from there. I'm looking forward to some more mm -hmm. on that. You'll have to come back on the show. Finally, Christian, the essay, that, the wonderful essay you wrote for this issue of uh, Liberties is In Dreams Begin Responsibilities, a memoir. I'm guessing that there's an element of catharsis here in this writing for you. What did you... What did you, how did you end this piece in a way that, what did you learn from writing this piece about yourself or your generation or generate a New York Generation X or Irvin Howe's generation or the next generation after you, these people you call the young people and their seriousness, their moral quality? What, what, what are the conclusions you as an author got from the experience of writing this? It's a short piece, but it's beautifully written. Thank you very much. I mean, I was also trying to get some laughs um, for the reader. Um, I don't know if that's always obvious, or maybe it's just I fail. But I don't know. There's been a well, lot of laughter and tears. There's always a yeah, a mixture of both. You you, you yeah. write about your own irrelevance. Uh, it's funny. Shortly after I closed the piece with Liberties, Harper's Magazine came out with its Gen X issue with a really good piece by Justin E.H. Smith and then another, a memoir piece of his, and then another- He's been on the show. He, he lives in Paris, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And um, another piece by Adam Kirsch about the, the late Gen X novel focusing on Zadie Smith, but also Sheila Hetty and Ben Lerner. And um, <clears throat> it's it's it seems like, uh, or as a, a millennial friend said to me, all you cranky old Gen Xers are now looking back. What's the deal with that? Yeah, is that true? It, but it's, you know, I don't think, I mean, we actually grew up in, at, at the time of the first, like, the era of the instant memoir when really young people were um, writing memoirs maybe before they were ready. Um, I mean, you can, I don't know. I mean, I guess the big one from when I was a kid was Dave Eggers, but he had so many traumatic experiences. Uh, David, David's been on the show a couple of times. You know, as a memoir, Christian, there isn't a lot of Christian Lorenzen in it. It's, a, it's, um, it's, it's the memoir of a generation rather than a personal one. Well, it has, it has a, some stuff about a couple crappy jobs I had. Generally, the character called you in the essay is me. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I was trying to be, be a bit cheeky and not to be super confessional or narcissistic. Um, I mostly try to use the you slash me character for punchlines. Um, I mean, I, you know, my generation right now is thoroughly ensconced in our middle age and 
I think that we, you know, we've we've had the feeling of what it's like to give over the cultural field, or as Justin would say in his piece, relevance over to the younger generation. And now we're all trying to figure out what we can still accomplish in life because we've got a few good decades left in us. So that's the kind of thing I was thinking about at the end of my piece. 